Hi, I'm Rajorshi Dash and you're listening to Queerness and Storytelling in India. So today I have with me Anil Pradhan, who was born in a small cantonment village called Salua in West Bengal, India, to Indian Nepali parents who had left for and made new homes in other places. Impacted by this aspect of having multiple homes and by virtue of his queerness, both his poetry and his research mainly focuses on the intersectional politics of sexuality, migration, and memory. His ongoing doctoral research at the Department of English, Chadapur University, focuses on the intersectional politics of sexuality, home, traversal, and memory in the context of contemporary Indian queer diasporic and immigrant literatures and cultures. Pradhan is a senior research fellow at the university, and this is sponsored by UGC. He has been able to share how finding home and coming to terms with and celebrating one's queerness can often be synonymous, especially for multiple marginalized folks. This intimate context has been reflected in his first book of poems titled Fleeting Oddments, published by Writers Workshop Kolkata. His poems have also been published in Café de Census and Virtual Verse, an anthology of art and words. Welcome, Anil, and thank you so much for agreeing to this podcast at such a busy time when you have just, I think, returned from Birmingham and with a puja going on in West Bengal. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me here, Ayushi. I'm really honored to get a podcast. I'm really looking forward to it exciting discussion <laughs> the, conversation yeah i think the honor is honor is mine uh, the, <laughs> the podcast is largely an attempt to like you know mm. uh, curate and collect stories and different kinds of narratives it's also an extension <clears throat> of my phd um some of some uh, some uh, uh, interviews are directly related to my phd because i am also looking at certain kinds of um uh, queer uh, articulations vis-a-vis um the form of the anthology and uh, uh, the question of marriage and also the question of indigeneity in the Indian context. Um, so that's what my larger uh, project is. It's also very specific to India. Great. That's, that, that's great to know. That sounds very interesting too. Thank you yeah, for I working did. on that. Looking <laughs> forward to it. <laughs> yeah, so I, was, so I read your uh, essay, uh, the audio essay in uh, BBC Radio, which mm. I think centered on the question of where you are from. Mm. And I was, and you talk about this, uh, you know, your relationship with the mainland culture. And I think if I'm not mistaken, you uh, uh, describe Calcutta as, I quote, relatively queer friendly. And you also use Mm. the term globalized. Uh, Now, you are in research, you are a researcher as well. And globalization has such complicated pulls, you know, um, around market and, you know, labor so what does it mean for you to do this kind of intellectual and maybe creative, both intellectual or creative labor in the local, regional and global? And I don't know how to how you interpret these terms. Uh, the local can also be the regional, but in some cases it's not. So I was wondering, like, what does it mean for you to do that kind of labor, whether it's in Kolkata, whether it's the context of larger, uh, you know, the Indian sort of mainland context, or in the context of you being an Indian Nepali, or you speaking uh, from Birmingham about language and colonization, you know. So, what does it mean for you to do that intellectual labor? Okay, thank you, thank you for that. Uh, it's a it's, it's a vast question, and I just try to get in through. I think a few entry points, maybe. So, while you were asking that question, one thing struck me. Like uh, the first point I would like to talk about is how it relates to the personal. So. Because of migration and queerness, so the whole idea of finding homes or a sense of quote-unquote belonging uh, really has really impacted how I look at research and at poetry. So that that intersecting point is that. So if I go from that personal and into the local and the national or say the global, I think what stands out the most, most importantly, is that um, how sexuality and uh, travel 
or say uh, displacement has impacted how people have experienced or have similar experiential uh, histories or narratives. So that's what I would, I mean, that I, that I would want to look at my thesis also. So when I write poetry, so that is what I try to look in from that lens too, but in a different context. So, but to go back to your question, say the local, the regional, and then say the national and the global. <clears throat> so as I said, it, the entry point is the person. And then I try to look at things which are relatable in that context. But then the questions of say, the comparative comes in. Say for example, I am researching on things which are pertaining to the uh, idea of the Indian diaspora, the Indian queer diaspora in a globalized context in the US. While on the other hand, I would have wanted to work on something more regional, right? Something about say the queer politics, the queer cultural context in say the hills of Darjeeling or Sikkim, right? So which are, uh, to put it very bluntly, would be something closer to home, right? But then I'm working on something with uh, on different context and going in a, on, a, on a more globalized sense of understanding of queer diaspora. So all of that ties up together because I think uh, like individual experiences in this context would also speak to the the uh, the uh, collective uh, context. Um, so in that sense, also, I try to bring in uh, that concept of uh, reflecting, confessing, and trying to speak to a larger audience through my personal experiences. Like that's what most poetry, like all poetry does. But in my context, I try to bring it in a sense that, um, you know, it is at once cryptic. So it would be something like a, somebody who would have the contextual information would understand, but at the same time, it could be placed anywhere. Um, I don't know if that answers that question of, you know, like putting myself in the local, global, and the uh, the regional and the personal, but definitely it goes through that person on, a, on, on each stage. Think of Calcutta. Again, I use the term Calcutta and not Kolkata. I mean, there are different reasons for different people to use it. I mean, I feel personally that Calcutta re resonates more with this idea of this um, multicultural space. I don't know. I mean, it may be um, um, to say a drawback of the, the limitations of language. So uh, again, it has a colonial aspect to it. But I think I would relate to Calcutta more than Kolkata. So to talk of Calcutta as a globalized city, in that sense, I'm not talking about say um, that it's a metropolis which which would be which would um, categorize itself. I don't know the term would be categorize itself as say a city in the global north or like obviously those distinctions have to be made because of the issues of say class right and caste and uh, and religion and language so everything that intersectionality talks about uh, would put calcutta into this map of say the global south in its own fashion now if i so when i talk about say queerness in this context of globalization. I think that Calcutta um, afforded to me a freedom that wouldn't have been possible, say, if I stayed back in my hometown or went to the um, my parental towns, right? Because obviously uh, uh, the institutions that I went to were uh, uh, liberal in the sense, quote unquote, liberal spaces of thinking and conversations and discourses. So that gave me a platform to explore and also to uh, come to terms with sexuality in a positive manner. It's not to say that uh, the entire story is very, uh, I mean, uh, it's very rosy, but then uh, there have been instances where say, I have felt um, that Calcutta as a city, as its spaces have been uh, more, um, uh, fear in terms of expression of my sexuality. Again, everything is comparative, comparative to say where I have lived in the past, where I belong from. Uh, I think Calcutta has been a space that has afforded that. So say, for example, when I had done this um, 
I had conducted a small research with one of my co-authors uh, some time back, and our um, focus was on the micropolitics of um, intimacy in Calcutta's public, semi-public spaces. So we're trying to look at how uh, the queer youth of a certain age uh, age group uh, you know, partake in intimacy, same-sex intimacy in the public spaces. So most of them came to one conclusion, please, was that, and many of them were, uh, say, um, students or uh, workers or employees who had migrated to Calcutta from different parts of the state or even uh, the country. And they said that Calcutta affords them the space of you know, um, uh, both anonymity because they're not from the city and also freedom because through that anonymity. For in my case, it becomes a bit dicey because uh, I'm like this, is he uh, that Schrodinger cat? Okay, so is he from here? Is he here? Not from here? Because you see, um, my minority status affords me another type of agency, right? So I can very easily switch to say that my belongingness to this space is always suspect, and that can be used as agency too. So that has been used in your, and and many people do that uh, very strategically. So that also helps, you know, when you are located in a space where you belong to the minority in multiple ways, right? So the, 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 that's only one example. Obviously, I, as I always say, that issues of class and caste matter in this case, specifically for me, class maybe, and in this case, ethnicity, right, uh, or, or language. So um, because I acknowledge my pr uh, privilege whatever that may be whatever level of that may be which might not be afforded to people of certain classes or people speaking certain languages people coming from certain regions of the state right so uh, taking that into account i think calcutta has been uh, a liberating space for me at least I'm actually fascinated by what you said about the agency of you, you know, uh, having the ability to flip uh, sort of uh, your belongingness or identity. And I was wondering, can you elaborate on that? What, when, like an example, when you were able to use that, uh, this minority status uh, as something which is, uh, which was useful to you, as opposed to maybe someone who uh, is like very typically like, you know, the represents the Bengali mainland. Yeah, so I, I have some issues with that word mainland because it's like obviously that that center and periphery we all know that's there always. Um, uh, to talk about that in that term, um, I think I can give a very like general example. Like it would be like you know when say again there are distinctions because I was born and brought up in. South Bengal, right, and not North Bengal. So I had the access to language, the Bangla language, right. So I could very easily, you know, uh, say say when my friends and I talk about it, from those who are from the hill. So like you don't really look like you're from the hills, and or you could very easily mingle with the the locals here, right. So that can be used as agency too, and on certain. Uh, uh, context because I'm I'm not typically uh, say I don't know Bengali looking so I can use that to my uh, um, uh, aid too sometimes say when I want to get out of certain uh, specific situations which may be tricky so I would say that I don't really know the culture right I, I in some cases I really don't right but then it becomes I become suspect of Authorization. Right? So I can be very easily uh, otherized, and that might help me get out of that uh, situation. Not all the time, obviously, but then I can very easily also say that, yeah, I can speak your language, right? So yeah, I can be included in that. So both inclusion and exclusion, the practices can be uh, used uh, in certain specific situations. Obviously, not as a game, but as and when, like when you feel like it could help you. Uh, otherwise, also, say in my own community, in the sense like the Nepali-speaking community, uh, it could be used like because, say, 
there will be these expectations that either you are from here or from the north right so uh, so whenever say i am in, i was in a situation where i would have to you know interact with mostly straight people i was like uh, or like very uh, like masculine people so i was just like i'm not from here because you know like i don't know these things so i'm from the north so just please exclude me from that so it becomes very easy for people to you know like really say okay fine that's fine and they would not persuade that for many of my friends who are from the north that is actually unfortunately the reality because they really feel that they are like excluded from groups here uh, which was not really for me in in my case because i was quite easily could mingle with people but unfortunately that is the case for many uh those who come from the north so they tend to stick with each other so even when you find say the queer community from say the hills who come who are residing in calcutta you wouldn't say uh, see them um, mingling that much with say the uh, uh, queer community who are bengali speaking or you know uh, from the bengali culture very rarely would you see that because they would be this uh, groupings and they would genuinely not come, want to come out of that i don't know if you have uh, realized that or if you have examples but i think that's what i've seen generally i mean i i won't say about queer sort of community i'm not sure because when sort of i started exploring my queerness a little like in depth uh, i was already in delhi uh, and i've seen this in delhi for instance uh, you know people being in groups uh, uh, and it was also true i feel like sometimes i also did not realize that bengalis had their own groups like it took me some time to realize that oh like all the faculty in english except a few are bengalis and upper caste bengalis so there is very interesting like group sometimes also caste based sort of groups but i see what you're saying like because i think in this case of course it's more of a, like a safety uh, net like you feel more secure uh, when you are with people whom you know or you are familiar with uh, it sort of prevents i guess some kind of hurt um, uh, maybe even maybe even racism Uh, of a certain kind uh, and i remember of course instances of racism um uh, when the gorkha the recent gorkha land protests like in 2017 uh i remember there were a lot of videos where these a very uh, uh sort of racist bengali um like men trying and sort of you know um asking these uh, uh people supposedly nepali to uh, say some certain things and i think people specifically from darjeeling if i'm not mistaken so so it was yeah it's it's very much there and i wonder if that is the reason why people want to keep to their groups uh, but i'm wondering if is assimilation a good word to describe the process of integrating or would you say it's more like uh disidentification i think uh, yeah i do agree with you um terms like assimilation accommodation um integration uh these are very very rationalist terms right so these are like very black and white situations either you are here or you are not you know, like you're out of this place for folks who come from uh say i would not just say only from the hills or the different parts of the state right uh but because i would know more about say the folks who come from the hills i have seen that the problems generally arise when you know when people try to pigeonhole identities right so for example for me there was always this presumption that i am not from here right so mostly people would say oh i am not back home for the holidays and like i am at home <laughs> like where would i go from here so uh, when you say assimilation or uh, integration so you would be i mean generally the idea is that you are here so you are accommodated in ter- in certain cases maybe assimilated but then you would never be integrated into this uh this whole uh set of uh of a regional group or a national identity so i guess we have to get away, like do away with those terms and i think these terms like say what you were talking about dissension like with meiosis term so yes i think specifically for especially for queer folks uh because uh the politics of social inclusion or mostly exclusion are 
can be and they are generally varied right from places to places uh for example there are terms like say mainly chill right so they will be very easy for people in say the community bengali speaking community in south bengal to really if not accept at least acknowledge the fact that there can be certain ways of expression or ways of you know uh, performance of one's gender in certain cases sexuality but say this terms would be missing from certain parts of the state say in, in the north bengal uh, context we don't have terms like that which have you know become a part of the culture right so there will be more exclusionary practices there so for example when when many of my friends or you know, acquaintances or folks have come to south uh in calcutta so like i was saying they feel primarily more relieved because there's anonymity and there's uh, an opportunity the potential of exploration right that happens with any sort of migration yes but in this case because um there's this um um there's this understanding that we you really don't have to belong to this place because you are within the state and you can go back home and still you know like you will not your sexuality will not be suspected so i think um that often is the case for people who say um who are students right because like calcutta it has has obviously like is not the first option for many people now is they tend to go out of the state right and, and i don't know what happens in those cases but the diasporic culture that has been built like over decades right with students coming from the north to south and back i think uh, yes uh, terms that are very black and white can not be used any longer at all I'm I'm so uh, thankful that you gave me like a vocabulary to understand my own experiences in uh, Delhi because you know anonymity is the word perhaps that I was looking for to explain why I was so much more comfortable in Delhi. Uh, I also spoke to a uh, recently uh, I don't know if you know Pavel uh, Pavel and David Sun who uh, co-founded mm-hmm. the Chinki mm-hmm. Homo project. They are from the mm-hmm. Maithi uh, community in Manipur. Mm-hmm. So I was cur- I was curious to understand like when you have spaces like the digital anthology and globalization has made it possible for you know people to access internet and have alternate uh, uh sort of rooms for these kind of queer writings um uh, so i mean i'm just wondering your work also came out in a digital space the radio uh, right so when you sort of move away from print and you have already you are a published poet uh, you have a book by by a writers workshop it's very prestigious but is there a different kind of uh, negotiation that the platform um, allows you oh in the in that specific example which was um, i mean it was uh, written and performed specifically for this bbc thing um i think it has its own politics because i was supposed to speak on certain they had this very weird understanding of the double vision so i was thinking why not why is it that just doubles like something more right so i wanted to talk about multiplicity so i had to talk about things about everything actually it was just an introduction to my very brief introduction to what and uh, how i come to identify as what i am today and in that case i was speaking primarily for an audience i thought i was speaking primarily for an audience um, in uh, the united kingdom right who do not i who i presume do not have the had the current code opportunity to you know like learn or know much about say what a indian a queer indian nepali person might say experience in calcutta right that would be a weird uh, expectation to have from them and i was working with that a presumption and to give a very brief introduction in english but not a single word in a, in in any other language and i was thinking that in a way i was actually sort of being critical to the to an extent that i had to keep it sanitized you can't be very critical in that space either though it is digital though it like it is just there 
but then there are certain restrictions i had to face right so because i had never done a radio recording before so even the technicality of it was restrictive because i'm more used to more like pen and paper sort of old school style and there i had to talk about things in a uh, in a in a radio a radio recording room sort of which was again sort of empty because of the the unfortunate circumstances at that time um i feel that even the performance of writing in that space when it's created for digital spaces i think they are very very stark differences that might affect say how it is produced or you know uh consumed by the audience i unfortunately don't have much experience in that co- context uh now when i come back to the uh regional region specific context of the darjeeling uh queer literature whether it is written or performed or narrated through just you know, like uh in the non uh the non printed the non published form is in its nascent stage so like for the past few months i've been trying to get together an anthology which would be the first one which uh, would include everything that can be published um on queerness so me like so when i and my um my co-author and i sat down to think like how can like what would um qualify as queer literature because we could not just publish say the the written word we had to publish we have had to i mean we will have to publish um anything that is publishable on page so even that understanding so like i was thinking like why not we just give a qr code you know, like and then somebody can just scan it and just see things on the youtube so you know like intermingling or you know inter sections of various um media uh so that has to be done because of, because for the context right because there is so much of dirt that we have to come up with innovative ideas to make that happen to make an anthology come into place which in itself would be a printed anthology right that that's what we would be focusing on uh but obviously there would be ebooks too so in when you think in that context i think um everything is very subjective to that specific uh question so say for example when i talk at a space where at a, in a in a in a land where there is um an over uh, abundance of say um an over abundance of opportunities uh, access to media right and here when i'm talking about the bringing out anthology from a space where there are good writers but we cannot access them also because they don't want to be accessed so how do we bring in whatever we have and get it into a book because we are not afforded the opportunity or the um the privilege of you know talking about talk, talking in terms that it would be broadcast uh say uh in a space where it would be highly you know like uh, shared because people don't want to do that right so a lot of these things very very small things have to be looked at when i when i say if i'm trying to answer your if i have been able to answer your question specifically because the context matter uh, uh specifically when you come to say um uh, generally uh overlooked uh, geopolitical spaces right like say darjeeling when it comes to quilts right so i think that is maybe one way of answering the question Unfortunately, I don't know much about uh, digital. So I'm sorry, I don't know much about. No, that. I was just curious because a lot of people are using the digital space. Uh, is this print anthology uh, only for people from the queer people from Darjeeling, or is it like more for like a pan India? Oh no, uh, this. I mean, the the idea is to get it and get as much as texts, quote unquote, texts from the region, uh, Darjeeling, Sikkim. Uh, uh, Kalimpong, Siliguri, that that entire belt, because we are thinking like why not have that, right? Uh, because I think Zubair is bringing out the northeast one, uh, right? So we think like we we might approach them or something, try to see something specific to that region. Uh, it would include any writing by anyone on any topic queer, so it's as broad as it gets. 
So like we have submissions and still now we are trying to get submissions. So we are trying to get funding also for that, that can get some workshops done because you see there might be stories which we have not heard and might more, they might to share it if they get a, a safer space. Uh, so that also matters because because you just call them up and you say like I'm writing I'm getting this book done and we have to write about your personal experiences now that becomes like a bit traumatic and people and we can't expect people to say yeah I will write about that because these often are people who say who do not have the examples that you know, like they their stories can be you know uh, broadcast in 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 any form. It it is mostly for say a sleepover or say a hushed, uh, very intimate discussion with a close friend, for very very quote unquote closeted uh, folks in the in the region. Again, class class comes into the play. So we were discussing like how do we reach out to people who do not have the access, right? So so when I watched a video of the first gay pride uh, in Darjeeling, most of them were from say very rural areas. Who, whose limited understanding of, say, the very West-influenced terms did not really matter because you see, it for them there is no uh, use of that term, right? So even if they say it, the people would not really understand, right? Rather, most of them had had to leave homes uh, in abusive uh, circumstances, in uh, in unfortunate cases of loss, right? So how do we really? Take those narratives and you know publish them. So that is what I'm trying to think about my co- uh, like Koisha, and try to come to a consensus as to how do we move forward with what constitutes uh, publishable queer narratives. So again, these are context specific. So I'm still going through that process. It's a very slow process, as you yeah. can understand. Yeah, and it's uh, a challenging process yes. as well. I mean. I, I spoke to Ashwini Suksankar who had public, who had edited Facing the Mirror. And she was, I mean, we're discussing the processes, the ethical processes, you know, of storytelling. And she was saying how people would send them tapes, audio mm. tapes, uh, and they would sort of transcribe it. But then she doesn't have those tapes anymore. And of course, the anthology was mostly anonymous, except mm. maybe a few submissions. So it was a different time altogether. Yes. Uh, also not to although not to deny that the you know situation might be precarious to many people in a certain context as you as you said uh, but recently the akhil and aditi angiraz's uh, work also came out and i actually have a, a poem there which is oh no i just read the poem i read really? the book. i actually liked it yeah <laughs> it it it's came out of a very um, strangely i think mainlander like i know you hate the word but uh, <laughs> i think comes from a very mainlander sort of perspective mm. of mm. what they saw in darjeeling and mm. gantok uh, as a solo traveler uh, mm. but what, what i was uh, interested in was the their uh, sort of introduction mm. on what is merit and how it's casteist but i was also curious to understand that uh, who gets to do an anthology like that which also sort of uh, makes me curious what has been your experience of working with publishing houses so far you of course worked with writers workshop and you said you are working with zuban on this oh no i mean uh, because zuban expects the entire manuscript ready right so we want to first get like put together something that can be taken to the editors and say like look we have a proposal uh, so again for me personally, because I'm not really a professional writer, I don't consider my, myself as that. Uh, see, I've only published one book, and going through that process was that the understanding is very general. Like as most people tell you, that major publishing houses will not publish you until you have an agent backing you up, right? Uh, so obviously, like my manuscript was never, I think, acknowledged by say, the major pu- publishing houses. Uh, now, the thing with the Writers' Workshop was that obviously they are an indie publication house. So now the model has changed a bit. But what they're looking at was uh, publishable material. Uh, and they found my publishable in that case. And that's how it worked out. So it was a very old school, old style. From like send the, the manuscript and then they go over it and they say, yes, let me sign an agreement. Um, so several of such publishing houses have turned up in India, fortunately. 
for poetry, like we have Havakal, right? Uh, we have Red River. Um, there was also, I think there is also speaking title. Uh, then we have Trisamu, uh, right? But then I don't know if they publish poetry. Uh, so things like, uh, like publishers like these. Personally, in my case, uh, I have not yet started to work on my second book, uh, but I would rather go for indie publishers rather than the major names. Uh, for the anthologies bit, I mean, we would try to get it done through Japan because of their uh, specific interest, consistent interest in the Northeast, right? Uh, pertaining to issues of gender and now also sexuality, right? The, with the new book which is coming out from, um, edited by uh, Janice, right? But yeah, is editing that. So yeah, it's something to really look forward to. Mm. So yeah, that is why you have, that's why we have certain preferences of publishers, uh, if that works out in some way. So that has been my experience still now. Uh, obviously there have been a lot of self-publishing houses like Motion Press, which you would not believe has been publishing a lot of queer texts oh. in, the, in the recent years. Actually the maximum number of texts are from that publishing house for uh, say first timers. A lot of queer poets have been publishing, a lot of queer novelists have been publishing from them. And uh, coincidentally, the first queer um, uh, fiction, uh, it was a novella uh, from Darjeeling Hills was published from Notion Press. Uh, so, yeah. Who's so, the writer? He's Salim Rai from Kalimpong. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, he's the only one who has, and his is the only queer published book from the hills, uh, apart from, say, Parajuli's, because, uh, again, he's from Sikkim, there's a different thing. Uh, I don't know if you know this, that's like Darjeeling is a different, like, versus Sikkim sort of thing. So, yeah, those are the uh, experiences I've had with publishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was this, uh, it was more like a researched book that came out, I think, Kostav Chakravarti's uh, Queering uh, Tribal Tales from Northeast India. I wrote a critical review of that book uh, a couple of months back. And, I, and they, they had sort of these folk tales. He had sort of the, these folk tales translated by someone. Um, but it wasn't very, I wasn't very sure who translated uh, the folk tales. Uh, and it was basically sort of talking about the queer potential of these tales. Um, but I, but I, I'm not saying uh, that that's a sort of a great way uh, of doing the work. But I was curious to know, are you also looking at folk tales? And if so, uh, would language, like would you include the Nepali script or other languages, uh, you know, alongside English? Is that something that you're thinking? About? Oh, so it's very interesting you bring up... Uh... Kosovda's thing because it created a lot of controversy if you don't know about that. I had no clue. Please tell me about the gossip. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. uh, I have not read your review either. I'll do that. Uh, not that I've read the entire book, obviously. Uh, <clears throat> the controversy is, uh, was brewing at that time. So there were indigenous scholars, uh, say, mostly lecture, because the book, the, the chapter yeah. was on lecture folklore, right? They, no, there so, are three. I think there are four. Uh, so Lepcha, Toto, then uh, two other. I think. Oh uh, yeah, no, I was no, I'm, I'm talking about uh, specific to say uh, the hills. I think he was focusing on Lepcha and Limbus. Okay. Yeah. So for for the Darjeeling hills, Darjeeling and Sikkim hills, he was focusing on that. And I read the book, the that chapter specifically, and uh, it was fine. And because obviously, as queer researchers, we are often accused of like querying everything and anything on this earth, right? You have to get queer theory. It is a, a very interesting um, entry point into getting the conversation started, right? So there was, there was this brewing accusation that like, uh, you really cannot see things which are not there. So that was, was well, that was the main idea of the uh, accusation against his way of doing things, mostly by, say, researchers and professors who are, say, uh, belonging to that indigenous uh, community, 
say in Sikkim and Darjeeling. So they were saying like, say it's fine that you are talking about say uh, looking at folklore or tales in a queer perspective lens, but then they said that maybe there's not really much to do. I mean, if you're forcing things into it, so the controversy has become has blasted like uh, after his recent article in Himal magazine. Sorry. the journal from edinburgh i think so uh, his recent article was on masculinity queerness and the folklore in the literature uh, context and people had this uh had this uh uh what to say um complaint maybe i can use the word complaint that uh that he is uh, colluding two very different say gorkha identity and the literature identity and then you know like talking about masculinity and queerness from that perspective which is problematic for many people that i've talked so there was controversy regarding that uh there's this back story to what you were talking about where you were asking that if i will look into folklore now after this controversy i feel like we have to be a bit more uh you know like specific about what we are trying to look at because you see uh the question of outsiderness comes in because kosovda is often looked at as fine that he is teaching at say a reputed college in north bengal uh living in a space uh, which he has lived for quite some time but he's often viewed as he can be very easily labeled as outsider looking into you know he's giving the outsider's perspective often times that is helpful because you get gives an objective perspective but the general trap is that you do not get the uh, the um to say the legitimacy right of talking about things which you might not belong to that has been the accusation a generally is the accusation with such contexts so when so if i am to include folklore uh, which might look at uh, at looked at in a queer perspective i think if i mean i would be glad if you know, if somebody wants to work on that in a fictive manner maybe but not say as a research because i don't really want to get into that because that's not my forte uh it becomes problematic also because many people don't view me as uh, an insider from sidarjuli right because i've i was not born brought up there so it becomes a question of like if you have the the legitimacy of doing that research also because the nepali um, speaking community in darjeeling hills kalingpong hills sikkim hills are just um they're just brought together by the language the lingua franca right but if you know or if you wish you already know is that we are different communities right with our own cultures and subcultures and languages unfortunately we just speak nepali because of the um the upper caste upper class ruling uh the shah dynasty long history back they dates back to nepal right we won't get into that but the jesus that you know like uh, uh it is a community which is brought together for the sake of a political identity right primarily so when really when you get into research like this the fissures start showing uh like the those those differences become points of contention and very very much so when very uh, touchy subjects like queerness and sexuality come in to this very generally very masculine uh i wouldn't say hyper masculine but say masculine masochist uh, uh heteronormative understanding of say culture because uh, believe it or not the culture there is very patriarchal and heteronormative my problem was with the extractive nature of the labor um the fact that mm. um i did not see a lot of ethnographic notes even though it was gestures towards mm. uh i didn't see notes on translators uh i saw a lot of theoretical stuff like theories around translation uh but i didn't i didn't feel the book was meant for uh the community whose folk tales it was meant for an academic audience but but yeah and and this actually since you mentioned the differences uh, 
within the Nepali community. Uh, but is there a, like a difference also in the way the question of Gorkha land is being approached? Is religion also a factor? Definitely, definitely. Uh, I think this uh, the example of the Gorkha land, the whole region, a very small region, but it's so, com- so complex. So whenever I talk about this, I feel overwhelmed because I don't know where to start and where to end. Uh, because the history is so complicated too, right? Because you know, as it is, like you know, because there was so much of transfers of power and land in between, say, three kingdoms and then one empire, right? And finally, when the dice stayed and 1947, uh, the uh, the independence thing came, and then Darjeeling came to be a part of, say, India and Bengal, for that matter. Uh, because it was never, there was this constant demand to not be that exactly. In the 1800s, when the first uh, demand was raised, but it was never heeded. And then put into that whole hodgepodge, the uh, the sickness, uh, uh, what to say, annexation, right? Because it was literally an annexation. So... When that annexation took place, now again, Sikkim had a different demography. Uh, now it's completely changed. Um, also because of this inter, like, like multicultural nature of, say, the entire region. Definitely there would be, you know, differences in, say, how people from various parts, various classes, various castes also, and religion, and languages would look at Gorkhalan. So, say, I have close friends who are not, say, from the Gorkha community. Now, it's very easy for people to uh, categorize them as Nepali-speaking Gorkhas, but technically they are not, and they would not like to be you know, uh, labeled as that. For them, Gorkha land does not really make sense because it was their land. right? So when you talk about Gorkha land, the people... Uh, Categorized as Gorkha are basically people who speak Khas. Now, Khas is basically the language Nepali, right? Khas Nepali is the language of the upper caste. It's not even our language. So my language is not really Nepali. It's Nevari, which I don't really know, unfortunately, because obviously Nepali was thrust upon us a long time back. Uh, for them, it is like doubly removed because, or multiply removed because you see, these are people who are claiming to be a, uh, the rightful residents of this place when they are not, say, because it was Britain-induced migration, okay. But now here, there is an exclusion, right? So the term itself, Gorkhaland, excludes indigenous people who were the inhabitants the, uh, of the space. Uh, not, say, Darjeeling proper, but the entire region, say, mostly the Kirats the lectures, right? But then with years of, you know, like um, exclusionary practices um, where say power politics works out in a way, firstly, it worked out this Nepali dominated uh, politics, right? Overthrowing say, overlooking whoever was there claiming it to be the space, right? So then the Lepcha Kingdom, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and then there came this more pan-Indian understanding, you know, like uh, that how we would have to bring our own identity as distinct from say Nepal, obviously because of the racist connotations of that, right? Where your identity becomes suspect of not being Indian, right? So that term mainland thing would work here, right? Because you would not be considered as belonging to India in the first place, and so on and so forth. So they wanted it to be this distinct uh, watertight compartment, which really, which really does not work, not anymore, right? Not now, it's not especially now, because you see, there have been influx of different people, say, even when people who are not speaking Nepali, right, this is not their mother tongue, quote unquote, say, for example, there would be people, say, from Bihar, right? There would, be, uh, there would be, say, people who are Muslims, but they have been there for generations, right? And they speak Nepali, but they would not identify themselves as Nepali, right? So how do you really incorporate them into this idea of Gorkha land? So obviously, there would be minority 
in this minoritarian politics of you know, claiming access to this agency of identity. Uh, so definitely there would be multiple you know, differences as to who would want this Google land, which started out as a genuine demand for identity, but now it has become more of a political gamble, right? Because many people believe that they would not get it. It's just a gimmick, right? To continue with the power wrestling, because as you know, there are new parties almost every month. I don't know what is happening with that place, but it is unfortunately so that uh, the people really do not work for the progress of the people there, as is in most co uh, corrupt political contexts. So it has become more of a hogwash to keep the blood boiling. And actually, even thinking the nuances that you're uh, refer describing, uh, I think they are lost on people, uh, Bengalis from Calcutta or uh, let's say Indians overall, because a lot of these people don't really care much. Uh, they just see this as, you know, okay, this is an identity politics. This is what you needs to happen. I and mean, of course, for some, it's just like Kashmir, but it is not. And for others, it's a way to sort of uh, uh, assert their own Bengali identity. Uh, and that is why I remember a lot of people uh, who were very radical otherwise did not speak up for Gorkhaland. Uh, and not because they were concerned about the minorities within uh, this identity, caught within this identity politics, but because they just didn't want to, mm. um, you know, uh, have this land sort of taken away, so-called taken away from uh, West Bengal. So it's very interesting. Uh, since you mentioned Newar, Newar, right? Did I hear it correctly? So, uh, yeah. so when you say it's an imposition, like, is it an imposition that is coming from the Indian Nepali population as in this language? Oh, no, no, I'm not talking about that. Uh, this happened a long time back because you see, most of the inhabitants in Darjeeling, so Darjeeling didn't have inhabitants who were speaking Nepali at that time. Originally, Darjeeling was just forested barren land. There was nothing yeah. there, uh, except say they were uh, the, the Lepcha kingdom, right? Uh, Lepcha speaking people. Now, the, the incursion of, say, the Nepali speaking population was from Nepal, right? A long time back during the British induced, uh, obviously because the British wanted recruitment also for their army, which they could not do from Nepal because the kingdom had imposed restrictions. So there were a lot of reasons, uh, and obviously the tea industry. Uh, they wanted people to work as laborers to build up Darjeeling as a sanatorium for their summer recess, right? So, yeah, that is how the incursion took place originally. Now, before that incursion took place, languages so there was the the kingdom of nepal did not exist right it was brought together by prithviraj shah right once he overtook say the three kingdoms in the kathmandu valley uh, and then he unified nepal as we see now right and that was when the imposition took place because then there was uh, this idea that you have to speak our language if you want you know unity unification of the country for the sake of you know, the nation. So people spoke their own languages. Thereafter, Nepali, the caste language, was imposed. And that is how we came to speak Nepali. So there will be still be people in the Kathmandu region who speak both languages. Right. So uh, Nepali, which is my language, is called Nepal Bhasha there. Uh, but Nepali is also a language. So both of both of them are official languages. But say for unfortunately for people who migrated to say Darjeeling Hills, they did not have the, uh, the pri privilege of continuing to speak in their languages. Because you see, this is a foreign land, quote unquote, where if you continue with your differences, language unfortunately becomes a point of difference here, you would be divided even further. So they came together by uh, necessity to speak in Nepali. It was an indirect you know, way of you know, getting imposed upon. So that's what I was trying to say. Unfortunately, it is like, it has a very complicated background to it. Like your poetry is, from what I read, uh, is political, right? And so is your research in many ways. Uh, mm -hmm. Is there a, and you earlier, you talked a little bit about the distinctions that you make uh, between the two um, and the kind of like the kind of thing that you will perhaps not do in research as opposed to 
you know, the kind of publish, the kind of interactions that you are having right now as part of the anthology that uh, you are trying to sort of uh, uh, pull together. So generally as a poet researcher, what is what different approaches do you take to writing? Like when you are writing for your, uh, for let's say an academic journal or uh, let's say just an article uh, that you, uh, you wrote this article, I guess, uh, for third lane, uh, mm. which is very like with filled with citation and everything. Mm. And then you also have poetry, uh, uh, like one poem which I read, which I think was a direct reference to the December, uh, the CA protests, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Uh, so these are also citational, but of course it's not academic. Uh, so what, so do you also do the same kind of research when you uh, write poetry or is it something that just comes like do you write every day what's the process like now with research um, so this is uh, I mean I, I I give this anecdote to everyone so like uh, I got into research in Queen to Queer Studies because, I mean I came into Jatava because there was Queer Studies as an optional there and I really wanted to pursue and like see what can be done in that context because sexuality really like, you know, like directly impacts me. I'm not saying that sexuality has to impact any sort of, any sort of research that queer people do. I mean, definitely that's not the case, but for me it was specifically so. Uh, and I am really happy about that because uh, that has given me this opportunity to really you know, explore things which have not been worked about or talked about. So there have been like complaints like, you know, oh, I see Anil every time in any conference and he's always there with one queer paper. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, like, and generally that session would be the otherized, marginalized, more like last session or, you know, parallel session would be like, okay, you are there, the queers are there all together in a group, you know, like. So when I look at research then, it's like first reason that I really work on very obscure text in this context is that to make people know that there are voices, you know, like, which have to be heard like you have to hear them you have, they are they are bound to be there they are not they are not going away there that was the first idea of, of visual that i got into then the second idea was that i want to explore um you know research in a way which would not you know um fall into the trap of say i have this very weird idea that like you, you do not have to have uh, theoretical, theoretical malapropism. So whenever when researchers talk about, say, research in sexuality, gender, uh, there will always be certain name callings, name droppings, uh, both at the same time, maybe. So I do not do subscribe to that. I would rather have a more poetic way of, you know, working on a thesis, but mm -hmm. unfortunately that does not happen. A very, very few people write uh, <laughs> Theses which would be poetic, also, right? Uh, very, very few. I don't know. I've not come across any such. I mean, except say maybe Gayatri Gopinath. I mean, her writing is a bit different. Poetic, really? Uh, not, not poetic, but I would. I, I mean, something that you would want to read for. Uh, then certain mm -hmm. writings, say, who would, you would not really want to read, say, for just for leisure, right? Uh, because I think Sadia Hartman could be one example. Hartman. Okay, I've not read Sadia. much of Hartman. Yeah, okay, a recent book, Wayward Lives, um, it researches young black women, I think from a certain uh, period, and she's sort of narrating their story. So it's researched, it has citations. But of course, it's Sadia Hartman, so she's not writing a PhD thesis. Yes, uh, yes. She already has like, you know, uh, established. Uh, but it, but yeah, I think that's uh, that's a sort of a model that I am actually aspiring towards oh. because my work is also a slight, somewhat autoethnographic. Mm, okay, that's interesting. I'll have a look at it. Thanks for that. Uh, so, generally, I think like you know, why can't we write in that sense? But then there are restrictions of, say, the field, restrictions of the genre of writing that we're doing. So that never really translates into that, unfortunately. Um, now, in poetry, uh, now what you have read. Uh, Jenny is not what I write. So when you said the word political first, I was a bit like concerned, like where have you read political poems from me? But then I, uh, I mean, 
everything is political obviously but then i wouldn't write say mostly on say political um happenings most of my poems till now at this moment have been personal in the sense they talk about personal uh, experiences uh in a more um intimate manner so they are mostly confessionals or reflective thinking about say migration thinking about memory remembering etc and loss obviously it's always there uh so maybe that is also a way of writing politically so most people would categorize it as the generic queer genre of you know moping about but i would not look at it in that sense because there are different uh, narratives right so again because it is so diverse the lgbtq plus experience i think there are there is a requirement to see and read and hear about diverse understanding and experiences too so for me the political would be through that uh, angle right when you talk about something so intimate that was not supposed to be shared with people and then is right there you know, in the public like look i've opened up it to you now you know like how do you deal with that maybe that is also a political statement because people don't really want to know about what happens in, in the lives of the intimate lives of queer folks you know, like uh, maybe there is a curiosity as to what happens on the in the bed but there's no curiosity in like what happens in their uh, say i don't know personal lives in, in the in the intimate manner so to open up in that vulnerability i think uh, constitutes of major part of what i consider as my politics of writing queer uh queer lee and queer poems because again they might be poems which you read and there you might not find i mean a person might not a reader might not find anything queer like what is there in it but then like people who would know would know sort of thing you know is also there so there is um uh anamorphic way of looking at it maybe or reading poetry which would be specific to the reader it was uh, lovely talking to you and i hope that your research sort of you know uh sort of you are able to finish it and hopefully sort of find a way to kind of connect the two uh i can't remember of any indian uh, sort of research i know parmesh sahani's work is autoethnographic um uh, i don't remember if he uses poetry um i know akhil katyal's book um doesn't have any of his poems but it has uh, it's very interesting because he has i think also the scripts in hindi and you know some of these scripts which are there in uh, doubleness of sexuality um, mm, i love that book actually the double yeah. sexuality it was a wonderful but but I, i don't know maybe you would get it done <laughs> for me and maybe i can find a more like a, a, another model to sort of aspire towards uh, hopefully oh. any last thoughts on what's going on in your life or generally uh so i was reading that book um, i mean like after i read your poem i was reading more about the introduction like the, the question which was there was which was very pertinent like what makes queer poetry right so that question was very really, you know, like hitting on me like what really makes queer poetry or queer literature or anything queer art in that sense so maybe as researchers too we also have to challenge you know, like what constitutes maybe literature i mean i have had to restrict my uh texts to certain genres because you know how restrictive it is in india right uh if you want you know like employment you have to really work with certain type of categories of literature but i think you know like a lot of things are happening that does not generally qualify as literature but you know like could be used for research also and maybe poetry performance of poetry and how poetry is written or how the coteries uh, the coteries of poetry poets themselves and interact with the other forms of art that could be looked forward I and mean, looked into maybe and specifically so for say regions like which are under researched right uh, uh, a very specific geopolitical context but not just that like even within say the so called um uh progressive spaces right where there are discussions and discourses all the time there are often uh, communities 
or parts of communities who are marginalized, right? So how do they deal with certain things like poetry? Because poetry is again considered a, uh, often considered a form of leisure, right? Like we do not have the, uh, the privilege of writing poetry, right? Uh, for certain people who have to struggle uh, with existence in the first place, right? So how do how does art deal with that, or how does it reflect in art? So maybe things like this, like floating in and coming out of minors, sharing with you. Maybe somebody has to work on it in the future. <laughs> and mm-hmm. yeah, I can see poetry everywhere, even in pride parades, where uh, these some of these very interesting slogans. And I think Kolkata Pride should be around the corner. I saw the meeting, the date of the Pride organization meeting. Uh, I'm looking forward to finding poetry, uh, not just through graffiti, where there is, of course, poetry, but also through unpredictable, like, you know, spaces, which might even be mainstream, but there are these glimpses of good poetry. Uh, Thank you so much. This was a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having you.